I have with me a very special guest, Eric Edmeads. Eric is a global citizen with a unique perspective on life. Having been born in South Africa, raised in Canada, and traveled extensively, he's an entrepreneur with a diverse portfolio, ranging from mobile computing to Hollywood special effects, contributing to iconic films like Avatar and the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. But it's not just his entrepreneurial spirit that stands out. Eric has also made significant strides in health and wellness. His revolutionary program, WildFit, has improved the lives of over 100,000 people in more than 130 countries, a testament to his innovative approach to health and well-being. What Eric brings to our show today, however, is his forthcoming book, The Evolution Gap, A Survival Guide for Modern Civilization. This work explores the growing divide between our slow-moving biological evolution and our extraordinary capacity to innovate rapidly. During our conversation, he will share some of these insights, and it was his perspective on this evolution gap that inspired me to invite him on the Wellness Driven Life Show. Join us today as we dive into a conversation with Eric Edmeads, traversing the terrain of health, behavioral change, personal health, and a course, of course, the fascinating concept of the evolution gap. This is bound to be a captivating exploration of our modern human condition seen through the lens of our evolutionary past. Welcome to the Wellness Driven Life Show, where you're about to go on a wellness-driven ride. the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast, and my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. I am delighted to bring to you today our guest, Mr. Eric Edmeads. Please welcome him. Hey, thanks for having me, April. Uh, excited to be here. Uh, it's my pleasure. You have such an extraordinary background. So I want to invite people to do their own researching and digging in because I can't possibly, Eric, 
read all of it and talk about all of the things that you have done. It's truly extraordinary. Every time I kept doing a little more research, I was like, my Lord, this man has done it all. <laughs> well, not all, but a little, a little. I think I was very inspired as a kid by uh, my, my dad who traveled extensively in his pursuit of fishing. And then I read this biography of Winston Churchill and realized what an incredible life he'd had. So in, in my life, when, when I had a decision to do something a little scarier or a little unusual, I, I, I somehow had this instinct that that was the thing to do. Well, that's great because that's what we need, right? Just a little push, a nudge, a jump, and excitement towards living life and adventure. And you definitely have portrayed that. So let's start by sharing a little bit more with the audience about who you are, if you want to shed a light on that. Sure. I, you know, I, I guess ultimately I'm... Um, I guess I'm ultimately an entrepreneur. You know, I've, I've, my background has really been about business and, and, and a variety of different businesses. Um, the, the contributions that I've made have been initially in the world of mobile computing and wireless networking and that sort of thing. And then after that, I got involved in um, Hollywood film production and, and special effects. And then some really cool projects uh, involving uh, military research and development, non, non weaponry based, but, you know, just some really cool technology things. And in the end though, um, Underneath all of that, I've really just been a real a, a student of the human condition. Um, I was very sick when I was young, and um, and I managed to turn all of that around um, by going ag against a lot of the advice that I've had from the doctors and the specialists that I was working with at the time, and that inspired a, a really deep passion in me to dig into the the, the 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 truth or let's say the foundation of what builds. Uh, you know, physical health, mental health, and all that sort of stuff. And so underneath all of my entrepreneurial ventures, that's been sort of the guiding, um, you know, the, the guiding focus, which is why about 10 years ago, I sort of decided to get out of the traditional business world and get into the writing, speaking, and teaching world, which is what I do most of the time now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it definitely branches you off to a wider, broader audience, doesn't it, when we start doing that, doing things like this, where we can get that worldwide audience and share a very profound message where it's those of us who have been affected or have those life experiences where something didn't work. And so we want to seek different answers and, and what it is that does work. And so my own experience, I understand that greatly. And so can you share a little bit about what exactly was it with the, the health issues that you experienced? You know, I, I, as a kid, as a very little kid, I'd, I'd had a bunch of food allergies. I was apparently allergic to milk and orange juice and a bunch of other things. And so I, I was probably a bit of a nightmare for my parents that way. Um, and uh, over time, I overcame those allergies and sort of became a normal kid. Like I, I actually could eat oranges and, and, and I could drink milk and eat cheese and what have you. And, um, but then, you know, sort of starting in my um, mid-teens, late teens, and even going into my early 20s, I was just sick all the time. So I no longer had like food allergies, let's say. But what I instead had was, you know, chronic sinusitis and throat infections, horrible cystic acne, uh, digestive problems that resulted in debilitating and when I say debilitating cramps, I mean like where I couldn't think, um, uh, you know, uh, routine headaches, you know, all of those things just became part of my life. 
And of course, my, my, my mom had sent me off to see our family doctor who then referred me to specialist after this specialist. And they prescribed these pills and those pills and these creams and these inhalants and all these different, I, I just was like a, a pin cushion or walking lab rat for experimentation. It felt like, and nothing really worked. Like, sure. I would, you know, I could use this weird say cortisol spray to open up my sinuses for, you know, an hour, but then it would be even worse the next day. And, and, mm. and you know, and then weirdly, I, uh, you know, I went to a, 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 what I thought was a business communication seminar by Tony Robbins. And uh, at the end of that, he started talking about food and I'd never really thought of food. I didn't eat badly comparatively. You know, I, I was like my friends, you know, we, we ate vegetables, we, we would eat food, we would eat pizza and, you know, like we were normal kids doing normal things. And most of my friends weren't sick like I was. So it didn't, yeah, food, I'm, I'm fine. It's not like I'm really overweight or anything. But I decided, you know, as I'm kind of curious about life and, and stuff, I decided to run an experiment. And that was to kind of, you know, follow some of the principles that Tony had shared during his workshop. And, and um, 30 days later, I had lost 35 pounds. Um, I, 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 my acne was completely gone for the first time in my life in, in a month. Uh, it was miraculous. It felt miraculous. Uh, yeah. my, I still distinctly remember after only about two weeks, one morning I woke up and I breathed in through my nose and I hadn't done that in years, not without a spray of some kind. And it actually hurt because the sinus tissue hadn't been exposed to like cool room temperature air. Like it, it, it brought tears to my eyes. I remember, but I also felt just this relief because with my sinuses congested like that, I could never sleep properly. It was like my whole life changed and, yeah. and then it changed again because my doctor's office called me to reconfirm the throat surgery they wanted me to have it at 21 years old. They wanted me to take my tonsils out. And I told them I didn't, I was fine. Like the infections were gone. I was fine. And I was really bemused by the fact that they never asked me what I did. It, all they did is they, they, they sounded like a bunch of used car salesmen trying to prevent me from returning the product I bought. Like it was like, it was tacky. And yeah. um, and that led to a conversation that changed my life and then subsequently changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. And that was this question. I asked one of my doctors, like, you know, how long did you go to medical school? And he said six years. And I said, OK, so of that six years, how much of that time was devoted to like nutrition? And I was shocked to find that it wasn't like even a year. It wasn't six months. It wasn't six weeks. It wasn't six days. It was literally nothing. He said, I remember there being something about you know, making sure that we, there was something about empty stomach for surgeries and that kind of stuff. But there was no, and that freaked me out. Learning that my doctor wasn't studying nutrition or hadn't studied nutrition was a bit like, like being on a plane and finding out the pilot kind of skipped the section on landings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mostly because you had this, this very major effect that from simple diet change. And so you realized how important that is to our overall well-being and health and from simple experiments of, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. And I think so much of us have to do that, right? Where we have to be like, okay, we're going to try this and see what works. And a lot of it, you know, we're kind of science experiments ourselves, but it's amazing what we find when it does work, when we just take out some of the things that are making us sick yeah. without knowing that they were to begin with. We are so consumed with the way that our environment were set up for failure. I think, <laughs> you know, we go into a supermarket and what do we see? 
right there or what we find the lower dollar amount. So we think we're getting a bargain. And so it's easy and appealing to to make a different a choice that's not good for us overall. Now, you had a, a quote that I heard you say at one point. You said, I'm not interested in universal health care. I'm interested in universal self-care. I love that quote. Can you explain more about that? I can. And I, the, tr the trouble is it's a little bit of a, political, a politically sensitive statement because, of course, the minute I say that I'm not interested in universal health care, then I get these people attacking me saying, you don't care about poor people and you know, all this kind of stuff. And that's not really the point. The point for no. me is this, that I wouldn't buy car insurance from a car insurance company that had flat insurance rates for all clients. I wouldn't do that. Like if, you know, 16 year old kid with three speeding tickets in a car accident probably should pay a different premium than I pay having had no speeding tickets and no accidents in decades, right? Like, you know, knock on wood, I need some wood, but you know, you know, <laughs> now, now the trouble we have in our, in countries that do offer universal healthcare or, uh, um, you know, something approximating it is that when you, you know, see that lineup of cars outside the drive-through for whatever fast food, it's not food, but fast something for food-ish type food. Um, those people are on the same healthcare program and it's all being driven by our t taxes. And, and, and ultimately there, there are a bunch of people that are, you know, either choosing not to, or are ignorantly not taking care of their health. And I, when I say ignorantly, I don't mean, I, I just mean, they just don't know, you know, yeah. and, and, but then we're all kind of, in that same healthcare system. And, and that healthcare system is being strained dramatically um, by the lack of self-care. And so I, I, that's where I really, like my feeling is, is that far more important than universal healthcare is universal self-care, because if people were fundamentally taking better care of themselves, and, and frankly, they were empowered and educated to do so and had a food manufacturing system that would support them in doing it, then the, the, the health of the planet would be different. And I would go so far as to say that if you look at what's happened with obesity and diabetes over the last 30 years, it's, it is a very, very serious and dangerous pandemic of problems. Mm -hmm. and, and I would even go so far as to say, having crunched the numbers myself, that if it were not for the prolific levels of obesity and diabetes in the population, the COVID-19 pandemic may not have been well, it wouldn't have been as severe. It may not have even become a pandemic. And I know, again, that's a controversial thing to say only I've crunched the numbers. I wrote this on medium.com. I can tell you that mm -hmm. in countries that had less than 18% obesity, COVID barely existed for them. And as soon as like their, their deaths per hundred thousand were lower than traffic accidents in America, like they, 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 it was there, but it wasn't yeah. prolific. But as soon as a country had 18% obesity, bam, it was a problem. Yeah. And so I think self-care is not only something we should do selfishly for our own good but i believe that we have a social responsibility to take care of our health yes and and i bring that up because i agree with you a hundred percent i i think it begins with the self and we have that responsibility like you said i have done research on blue zones for years now but um the documentary just came out on netflix and so i watched it the other day so it really brings up those aspects again and, you know, if, of course, when we are, when we are bombarded with an illness, if we have underlining health issues, it's going to have an effect on us more so than if we were 
giving ourselves that self-care, but it really starts with the knowledge and understanding. And we've discussed that a little bit. Well, people just don't have the, the, the knowledge, the know-how, especially in America, we're brought up again around this environment that says otherwise it doesn't support the natural eating it doesn't support you know taking care of ourselves it has this health care system that really is failing people and so i loved that um living until you're a hundred or something like that and i just really appreciated some of the things that it shed some light on and the author of that, he said, you know, I, I, I don't think it's anybody's fault in America. It's just because they ha they're not aware. People are not aware when the environment is such. So do you agree with that? You know, I, I, I would say this. Um, there are some people who are simply not aware. Like uh, they just are unaware at all. And then there are other people that are like vaguely aware. They're like, I know I probably shouldn't drink this Coke, but just this once, right? And then there's other people, they're aware, but, and they're trying and they've done it, you know, but the problem is, is that they are aware in a way that is worse than being unaware because they think they know, mm. they think they know because they've been taught by the next diet, diet fad or by some, you know, adulterated food science or by the media, they, they, they've been taught, they've been taught, for example, that fat is evil, right? They've been taught yeah. that. And so, and they've been taught that counting calories and, you know, restricting calories. I mean, if you just moved a little yeah. more and ate a little less, you could lose those pounds. Well, that's just fundamentally not true. But so then you've got that, that level of people who think they know and, and, and they're trying, but it, what they know is, is like, worse than not knowing because what they know is is, is polar opposite wrong. Then mm. you have another group of people who actually know, but they can't do it. They know, they know that they should eat less of this and more of that, but they can't willpower their way through it. And, and, and what I would say is that um, on that basis, if, if, you know, if anybody's listening now and you're overweight or maybe you're suff suffering with a lifestyle disease, what I would suggest to you is that it's not your fault. And, and, and a matter of fact, here, here's, here's a powerful idea. The word, the phrase lifestyle disease, I would put to you that where that came from was very, very smart marketing people in the tobacco industry. You see, mm -hmm. when they started getting sued by people, they recognized they needed to figure out a way to, you know, prevent themselves from losing their shirts in all these massive lawsuits where they, you know, ultimately they developed a product that killed people and caused untold suffering. So, you know, one way you can deal with it is with direct jury tampering. You know, go get yourself a juror and try and bribe them or blackmail them. But there's another way that you can tamper with the jury. And that is that you can change the public conversation. And so what you do is you start referring to lung cancer as a lifestyle disease. Mm. And what does that mean? It means it was the consumer's fault. It means it was the consumer's responsibility. Right. So now you get bombarded with that in the media. You keep getting bombarded with this expression lifestyle disease. And then you set you end up on a jury and you've got this person sitting there and the tobacco company is trying to make the case. Look, it's not like we try to pretend this stuff is good for you. This person smoked. We have warnings on the packages or whatever. And it's a lifestyle disease. Guess what? A lot of those original verdicts went with the tobacco companies. And it took a decade before they started swinging the other way. Well, guess who owns most of the food industry now? 
those tobacco companies and they're using those same ideas. So obesity is a lifestyle disease and diabetes type two is a lifestyle disease. No, they're not lifestyle diseases. They are the diseases of disastrous policies, horrible legislation, ridiculous lobbying and unscrupulous profit seeking food manufacturers. Mm. It really puts a perspective on, you know, having, taking more responsibility for that. And so I really like that term. And I am a big proponent of voting with your dollar. And I, what I mean by that is when we do purchase organic foods, whole foods, and we choose not to, to purchase the other products, that is voting with your dollar, so yeah. to speak. It's very effective. We talk with our WildFit clients about the, the democracy of the dollar, the euro, the ruble, the, the, the rand, whatever it is that they're spending, and that each one of those monetary units is a vote. And it's a vote for something to be built, manufactured, and sold. And so when you yeah. walk in and buy a Krispy Kreme donut, you're voting for that donut to be replaced with a multiple, right? You're voting for that. And, and I think that that's very, very powerful. And what happens is most consumers these days think that they're so small that they that their vote doesn't really matter. Matter of fact, they think that about elections now too, right? It's a, my vote yeah. doesn't really matter. Yeah. But I can tell you that we we had uh, this one client uh, years ago. The first time I saw this, I've now seen countless stories of it. The first one made a big impact on me, and um, she had made the decision that she wanted to um, avoid uh, like unnatural sugars and syrups and stuff like that. So she had hit a little bit of a weight plateau. And, and she, she, she was eating um, sausages. She wasn't a vegetarian. She, she was eating some really good quality sausages from an ethical, you know, uh, uh, butcher down, her, down in her neighborhood. But one day she asked about the ingredients and found out that there was uh, um, syrup in, in, the, in the sausage. And she's like, why are you putting syrup in there? And the guy goes, I don't know, because my dad did, and, uh, because his dad did. And we just do that. And she goes, well, could you make me a special order? I want them without the syrup. And she, they go, yeah, no problem. But, it, you know, you, you'll have to order it and prepay for it. So she did. Well, this goes on for a few weeks, but she would always call to see if her special order was available. One day she called and said, hey, are my sausages ready? And he goes, um, we don't do we, your, your special order is no longer necessary. And she goes, what do you mean? He, he says, just come into the shop. We'll explain when you get here. And she gets there and he's like, we no longer do a special order for you because that's Every all. single one you see here has no syrup in it. And she goes, why? And he goes, well, first of all, you got us curious. You got us curious why we were putting. So we asked our dad. And, and of course, our granddad isn't around anymore. So he couldn't tell us. But that, it, there was no explanation. And, and, and then we ate some of the ones that we made for you and realized they were just as good, if not better. And so then we had this woman call us and ask us for the same special order. She'd done some wild fit thing and she, she was <laughs> explaining to us all about wild fit and she asked for the special order. And that was the day we decided we were no longer putting that in the food. That is the power of voting with your dollar. Yeah. Uh, such a cool story. And speaking of granddads, you had a really cool grandfather who happened to find the oldest uh, homo sapien skull. Is that correct? Well, great grandfather. And I never got to meet him, but I, I'm, I'm pretty okay. sure he's cool. Okay. I'm sure he was cool. <laughs> if you're going around digging for skulls, that, that puts you in the cool factor. Yeah, a genuine um, in Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm curious, that had a little bit of a 
um, a take on you. And so you started thinking about things a little differently when you started learning about what he had found. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it, let me just back up a little bit first and, that, and talk a little bit about education in the context of this is that um, when, I, when I came out of high school, uh, university really wasn't an option for me. And, and there's a lot of reasons we don't need to go into that. But in, in a sense, there's, there, I'm actually kind of grateful for that because what happened in my life is that my curiosity was sort of free to explore, you know, on, on its own and not uh, ring fenced or, you know, corralled into a particular discipline. So here we have on one hand, as we talked about earlier, I had developed a powerful curiosity about food and nutrition and, 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 and its relationship with health. I had that curiosity going on. And then completely separately from that, I was really heavily interested in wildlife photography and nature conservation, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, where, you know, I was born in South Africa. And so I had that going on. And then, and then also now there's my great grandfather, T.F. Dreyer, and he uh, finds this, this skull, you know, back in the thirties. Now, before I even knew about the skull that he found, I, I was out on the beach in South Africa with my mom and, and my girlfriend at the time. And on the way back to the car, I suddenly had this like unexplainable motivation to run up this trail up this hill. And I ran up there and, and, and I was like, I don't, and, and they're walking to the car and I don't want to make them wait. So I'm trying to be super fast, but something made me run up there. I have no idea what it was. I'd never been there before. My mom confirmed I'd never been there before. I got up to the top and there was a cave up there. And it wasn't even a very special cave. It was not even very deep. It was just this cave. And there was a plaque on the wall that described that people had been living in and using those caves for about 200,000 years. And you got to put that in perspective. The pyramids, which we call ancient Egypt, are only like 3,500 years, right? So think about that, like 200,000 years. And I was reading about that and I found it really fascinating. And then I found it said that the caves had been excavated by this guy, T.F. Dreyer. And I didn't know who T.F. Dreyer was, but I knew my grandmother's maiden name was Dreyer. So that night we we're having dinner with her and I asked her if she knew this T.F. Dreyer. And she, she goes, well, I, I should think so. It was my father. Hmm. And, uh, and so then I started finding out a lot more about his work. And one day in the, standing in the Bloemfontein Museum in South Africa, I was holding a cast of the skull that he had found. It was a 259,000 year old uh, at the time, the earliest example of, of a homo sapien that had been discovered. And it has two bite marks in it that are roughly the right size for either like a spotted hyena or a leopard. And they don't know whether the bite marks caused the death or happened after death or what have you, but that sparked this powerful curiosity. Now, when you combine all these three disciplines, I was so driven and fascinated by understanding uh, uh, nutrition and, and, and health. I was so interested in sub-Saharan, uh, uh, sub-Saharan African ecology and nature. And now here I was developing a very powerful curiosity about human history. And those things all converged in a recognition that the best lessons about our health are going to come from that discipline, from looking at our evolutionary history. Mm. And so I love this story, first off, for a few different reasons, because as a child, you were really drawn. I, I love thinking about, um, you know, we're energetic beings. And so you were really drawn to the location. And so that's so exciting to hear about stories like that. And yeah, it really helps you start thinking about this evolutionary gap that we experience, which is what your um, book is coming up is all about. And you really have married that into 
wild fit. That is so much of the essence. And a lot of what I love about what you're doing, Eric, is that you, you don't just do the research or the experiments, but you go out into the field and you do as much of that boots on the ground research as possible to really, you know, understand that and enliven the experience of what people are going through. You know, um, again, it's a little bit of a matter of that classrooms weren't so very comfortable for me. And, um, and, and one of the reasons was, is that I would learn something and then I'd want to put it to practical application. I'd want to understand why I was learning it and then I'd want to test it. Mm. And, 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 you know, I, I think that that bad discipline in my education years has been a good discipline in my, in my business and let's say hobby years. Yeah. How has that, what was one of the most profound things you being in other cultures that, that you've learned and picked up from? You know, um, there are so many, there's one though that, and it, and, and it frankly was the moment that the book that I'd been working on in my head gelled into existence. You know, I'd been working on this book. It was like, I, I kept thinking of it as my life's work. Like there's this thing that I want to write about. And I have lots of, I, I've written lots of things and I've got many books on the way, but there was this one thing, this one topic, and I couldn't quite put a name to it yet, but I knew I was, it was like, um, actually I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll use a metaphor that a friend of mine taught me. It's quite good. It's like, it was like, I knew there was something below the surface, but like an archeologist, I kept, I, I didn't want to dig it out harshly because I, I, I felt like it was delicate and I was trying to dust it off and trying to explore it and find it. And, and you know, and then one day um, I was in Africa, funny enough with the very friend who taught me that metaphor, uh, Jeffrey Perlman. And, and we were, we were in Africa uh, visiting with the Hadzabe people uh, or the Hadza people. And um, these are proper nomadic hunter-gatherer people. They, they don't farm. They're not pastoralists. They don't keep livestock. They, they hunt and gather and, they, and they're nomadic. And I've been visiting them now for about 15 years in my, in my endeavor to explore the human condition. And on this particular trip, we went out for a hunting trip and we, we killed a large bush pig. I mean, think Pumbaa, but bigger. And, um, and they asked us to sit and guard the, 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 the carcass while they went and hunted for the second one. Cause they were, they, we were tracking too. And at one point I was like, all right, well, I gotta, like, I gotta go pee. So I said to everybody, I'll be right back. And I just walked down this little trail into this dry riverbed. And while I'm in the dry riverbed, the chief Nona or Nona, I can't pronounce it properly. He says, he goes, Mzungu, Mzungu, Mzungu. And, and he runs past me. Mzungu is, is a Swahili word that basically means tourist, right? Like, you know, white face, like come with me. And I'm like, holy crap. So I start running with him. Now, just hold on for a second now. I told my girlfriend and my friends, I'll be right back. I walked into the African wilderness and then I took off I, I, because the chief told me to. And I thought we were just going to go five minutes down the road. But no, an hour and a half later, running at full speed, tracking, it was like, I, my friends are sitting back there, probably worried terribly about me. I'm out there. And, and then I realized also we'd already done about 17 miles that day. And now I've been running for another hour at full speed and I'm like dying. And then it all happened. I'm running along and the pain is, I'm, I've been torn to threads by, by, by thorns. My feet are sore. My knees are sore. I've been running and this is not easy running. It's Africa. It's hot. It's and I'm running along. And then I have this out of body experience. And it's almost like I, it's like I have this consciousness shift where I'm able to elevate above and look down on myself running and look on them running and look at the environment around us. And suddenly I see something so clearly that I'd never seen before. And that is that this is fun for them. Mm 
that that every single thing they do to pursue dopamine, that every single thing they do to pursue pursue serotonin. Now they don't know that's what they're pursuing, but every single thing they do to get those feel good chemicals moves them forward to increase chances of survival and propagation. And that's it. Their neurotransmitters evolved for that environment. So when they, the minute they see animal tracks, they're excited. The minute the animal tracks disappear, they feel frustrated, but it builds up their tension. And then when they, when they pull back the bow and when they fight, all of it is designed to improve their odds of success in propagation. And, and that's the way it is. And here's the real revelation. And that is we have those same neurotransmitters, but we have social media companies, food companies, and drug companies that have figured out how to use those neurotransmitters to get us to buy their stuff that is contrary to our health and survival. And that is the evolution gap. The gap between yeah. our very slow pace of evolution and our incredible capacity for innovation and manipulation of our environment. Oh, yeah. Wow. And given that, what what do you feel is something that we are able to activate that replace that with? I mean, I know that there's a lot to be said about gamification, et cetera, and maybe turning it in a way that would make sense for our overall well-being. But also, wouldn't it make sense to engage that physical aspect of us? So have you had thoughts on what it is that, that people could transition to? Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the, the entire book, The Evolution Gap, is about a three-step process. The, the first process is to understand when you have a symptom that is being influenced by the evolution gap. Then the next step is to, um, uh, you know, the next step is to look for that. Like, well, let me put it another way. The first step is to find out why you're suffering. Yeah. Why are you dealing with excessive anxiety? Why do you have these allergies? Why do you have this disease? Why are you overweight? Why are you whatever it is, right? What's that symptom? Step two is to look for the modern influence that's taken you out of balance that's causing that symptomology. And then step three is to find a way to close that gap. And sometimes, yeah, you can do as you're describing. You close the gap by, to some degree, mirroring uh, the, the, the natural environment that we evolved for. So here's one example of that, is that um, one uh, uh, challenge we have as humans is that our lymphatic system, which is responsible for the flow of, of, of cleansing lymph to clean out our insides, our, our, our lymphatic system never evolved to pump, and it didn't need to. You know, our cardiovascular system has a heart to pump blood. It has a diaphragm to pump air. Our digestive system pumps food through. But you see, those things have to happen timely, whereas lymphatic flow doesn't have to happen minute by minute. It has to happen day by day. So there was no need of a pump because our ancestors moved so much that they cycled the lymph around muscular contraction and relaxation and twisting and bending and turning and manipulation causes lymph to move. Now you fast forward to today and the average person spends a lot of time on their bum, just like you and I are right now. A lot of people are sitting in their car listening to this right now. There are a lot of people that are sitting watching Netflix and, and, and working at a desk. And so they're not moving a great deal. You know, traditionally humans would walk somewhere between, I don't know, 10 and 20 miles or, you know, say 20 and 30 kilometers a day. And now we're not lifting stuff. We're not moving stuff. And so our lymph is not powered very well. 
So you can see that the gap there might be any variety of diseases and skin problems and inflammation and all these things that, that could be created if you weren't cleansing from the inside. So that's the symptom. Then the gap is, well, hold on. Our sedentary lifestyle is a problem. Closing the gap is move your body, right? It's very straightforward. But there are other ones that are more complicated, that are not simply a matter of mirroring some ancient lifestyle. The truth is, if we work very hard at identifying the gap between our ancient lifestyles and our genetics and so forth and our modern living, we can do something magical. And that is take advantage of both worlds and live the best possible existence. And I love that. So Eric, you're very passionate about this. There's absolutely a need. So, and, and then you have this history and in, in your, in your bones, this entrepreneurial aspect of yourself. Now it is, so important to kind of influence this global change for sustainable transition. Do you think, how would you say that would be possible? And do you feel that that's attainable within our lifetime? Well, I think that, um, I think it's important to remember that every generation pretty much has believed they were going to be the last generation and they've all been, you know, frightened into that. Like, you know, I, I remember distinctly in the 70s, uh, you know, I was a young boy, but it scared the hell out of me to find out that global cooling was going to kill us all. And, and you know, it, it, that that was the that was the fear that we had to face at that point. And then acid rain came along and that was going to end the world. And, and in the meantime, the Cold War was raging on and we were all going to get nuked to death. And then then global warming came along and now climate change. And and by the way, I'm not saying any of this stuff to say these things aren't real. I'm just saying that at any given snapshot in time, there's always been something to be really terrified about. And what I want to suggest is that we probably should be a little terrified about this, this very gorgeous, you know, thin layer of biology that lives on top of the space rock that we call Earth. Like, we should be careful mm -hmm. about that. And maybe we could argue all day long about, you know, human-caused global warming and that kind of stuff. But you know what we don't have to argue about is we don't have to argue about the fact that there's plastic in every cubic centimeter of the ocean and that there's bad, you know, air quality everywhere. And so, you know, the question is, can we fix all this stuff in, in our lifetime? Or let's put it even more importantly, can we fix all this stuff in time? You know, that's, that's a, a, a different question. Mm -hmm. What I would do is I'd start with this, is I would start with be the change that you want to see in the world. And the reality is, is that if, if somebody is living a dysfunctional, say, health lifestyle, say, for example, they haven't been able to, you know, develop a great relationship with food. And so they're often eating foods they wish they wouldn't. And they're living with regret and they're having food dialogue all the time. Oh, look, it's so yummy and it's free. Yeah, but you're trying to go on a diet. Yeah, but I, I'll start tomorrow. I mean, a lot of people have had a conversation like that. And, and so as long as people are in that space where they've got too much toxicity, they're overstimulated by chemicals and stimulants and sugar, and they're undernourished by proper whole foods then what that means is that they're going to be in a very bad way psychologically. They're going to yeah. experience enhanced levels of depression and anxiety. And the more anxiety and fear people live with, the more selfish they are, the less mm. they think about the people around them. It's so extreme that, you know, if somebody's completely expansive, they care about the planet. But if somebody is completely self-absorbed, they only care about themselves. And when you're in health distress, that's what happens. So the very first step, in my opinion, is to help people create a new relationship with their body, a new relationship with food, and importantly, to divorce themselves from the disgusting processed food industry. And yeah. if they can do that, then the first thing is, well, hey, guess what? When you stop buying disgusting processed food, you're already helping the environment a great deal. And then secondly, you're helping your own consciousness 
which is going to help you to make better decisions and help you to be generally a better citizen or a better human. And I think that is really where it begins. I think that that's beautiful. You really gave uh, the audience a lot of tips and insight on really being able to start somewhere. And I love your your candid wording of disgusting processed food because it is. And, you know, it takes care of so many different things. Not only does it help the environment, it is voting with your dollar. It's, you know, stopping that from creating more because you're voting with your dollar and internally it's it's changing you on a biological physiological aspect you know and then in turn it just helps everything all together so i really appreciate that feedback i want to make sure that everybody knows where to find you to get more information because you're just a brilliant human being thank you so much i do have on the screen and everyone um listening in, I'll read it to you. It's www.getwildfit.com. Again, www.getwildfit.com. Also, Eric has his um, own website and that's www.ericedmeads.com. So you can also find this information in the description below. Eric, it's been so awesome to have your wisdom and insight. I'm thrilled and excited to see your next book books coming out. I know that there definitely is some more things coming from you as you continue to get out in the field and research and really bring some profound insight to us. Is there anything else that you want to share with the audience today? You know, I, I, I think I would just say this, that um, the food industry has done everything it can to blame us for um, for what's going on. Um, you know, the soft drink industry came up with this whole thing that if you, you can run the calories, you can outrun your, your soft drinks, right? You can run the calories away. Mm. When you recognize mm. that the food industry has been working very, very hard to make you feel bad about any conditions or food problems or, you know, they've just done that. Like if somebody's a little overweight, then it's their fault. If, if somebody's got type two diabetes, well, they did it to themselves. If somebody has lung cancer, well, they did it to themselves. So, I want, to, I want to say this to you, and that is that if you are dealing with a lifestyle condition, inflammation, auto, many autoimmune diseases, type 2 diabetes, over, uh, obesity, any of these things, I really want you to hear me that it is absolutely not your fault. It isn't your fault. It was something that was done to you. And believe me, I am no advocate of victim mentality. I don't mean it from that perspective. I'm just saying, hey, look, if somebody drives their car into you, it's not your fault. But it is your responsibility to get your car fixed. It is your responsibility to avoid dangerous drivers. There's no question about that. You have responsibility here. And so it's not your fault, but now, now is the time that you do something about it and that you take responsibility for it and that you recognize that you're not just doing this for you, but you're doing this for your kids if you've got them. You're doing this for the people around you who don't want to see you suffer and end up with the normal, you know, developed world end of life process, which is unbelievably unpleasant and expensive, by the way. And then also... It's just about, you know, your quality of life. And the fact of the matter is, is that if you decide to take responsibility and really enhance your relationship with food and your body, and you, you put a little bit of effort in for a short period of time, your level of happiness and contentedness and just enjoyment of life can, can explode. And so I hope that you will do that. And I'm super, like, really glad that you've got your show um, you know, I, April, I, I think it's just, it's fantastic that you're out here sharing this content with people. And so I just want to say thanks for having me. 
My pleasure, Eric. Thank you so much for being here. It is you and others who are really making a big difference. And I'm so pleased to be able to provide that to an audience and help share the message with the world. Thank you so much for being here on the Wellness Driven Life Show. And for those of you tuning in, thank you so much and for the support of the show. And goodbye for now. We will see you all later.